All right. You guys both there? I am. Abram, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, Dr. Kirkland? It's good to hear from you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. All right. Are we ready to go, Abram? Yeah, so I uh, here's our musical selection for the day. Welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Wednesday, March 25th, and it feels like the eyes of the world are on New York City as the numbers rise here. In the middle of all this, we're thrilled to talk to a man who's been an inspiration and a leader for both of us. Uh, Dr. David Kirkland is widely recognized as a leading national scholar and advocate for educational justice. He's the executive director of the New York University Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the transformation of schools. NYU Metro Center is nationally and internationally renowned for its work on educational equity and school improvement. It brings together scholars, educators, and innovators from diverse backgrounds to collaborate on a range of projects to strengthen and improve access, opportunity, and educational quality across varied settings, but particularly in striving communities. The center also boasts a broad and bold research agenda that touched topics ranging from girls and juvenile justice to the education, language, and literacy of men and boys of color. And as a very current example of the work that Metro Center does, just yesterday they put out uh, a whole resource hub on culturally responsive and sustaining education in the current remote teaching and learning environment. So for those of you who are doing uh, remote teaching and remote learning, um, environments. There, there's the whole resources at NYU Metro Center um, uh, around, uh, you know, guidance on how uh, to do that accor according to good practices. So to me, David is uh, David's voice is definitely an inspiration. I feel like he's a man that has the message, and and I want to hear it whenever I can. Uh, his ideas are illuminating, and the work that he leads is impactful on a number of levels. Yeah, and. I first met David, I think he did too, um, when he supported the founding of the Alliance of, for School Integration and Desegregation. He was hands-on in supporting it both personally and in putting um, Metro Center behind, um, getting this kind of grassroots organizing effort off the ground. He facilitated our first meetings. He helped us conceptualize the work. Uh, and since then, Metro Center has supported our work in, in ACID, but a number of small nonprofit organizations devoted to integration and culturally responsive and sustaining education around New York City. So I've seen him both as someone who be, behind the scene is really putting his money where his mouth is in terms of supporting grassroots efforts to transform the system, and also somebody who is widely recognized and as an inspirational speaker, um, as a thought leader as a scholar. And uh, so we're just really, really pleased to have you on today. Welcome, David. Yep, welcome. Thank you both. Wow. wow. Thank you for such an uh, amazing introduction. You know, I hope this conversation and my work, you know, do that introduction um, justice. We're thrilled to have you. I'm sure it will. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, David, how are how are you doing? How are things going? How how is uh, how are you hanging in there? How's the team? How's the family? How how are you doing? 
personally, I'm, I'm okay. A little um, cabin fever. I've been in sheltering in place, you know, for the past um, 11 days. And, you know, I've had opportunities to connect with my team. The thing that you remember, you know, when you're tossed in situations like this is how much you need people and how connected we are. Mm-hmm. I just got off of a call with my team and, you know, just seeing those faces, you know, and I told them that I miss them. I told them that I love them. And I know that I miss them because I've gotten accustomed over the past five years of waking up every day, you know, um, and looking forward to seeing their faces, you know, um, and something in me, you know, um, longs for them, you know, um, in this moment. Um, unfortunately, it's sometimes in times of crisis that reality hits where we really, you know, understand that it's not about, you know, how much money we make. It's not about, you know, um, you know, who gets to be, you know, um, heard or who gets to be on stage or on television or wherever mm. the privileged or, you know, status spaces are. And really it's about people. And I think that that's what NYU Metro Center stands for. That's what I've stood for. Um, I stood for people, you know, um, in centering people. I think the other reality of this moment, I have a mom in Michigan, you know, um, who's over 65 years old. Mm-hmm. And Michigan right now is be- is beginning to get hit with COVID-19, mm-hmm. and she's alone, you know, and every day I'm thinking about her. And so I'm thinking mm-hmm. less about my situation um, and more about the situation of the people that we care about, that we're responsible for, like my mom or like our young people here in New York City, you know, um, who's going to have their education this year cut short, you know, um, especially students, you know, um, who are already vulnerable you know, um, to educational systems, you know, um, one question that I've had and I'm continuing to have, you know, um, what will it mean, you know, um, to teach ninth graders who never finished eighth grade? Um, what will it mean, you know, um, for seniors or for freshmen going to college, you know, um, who were looking forward to prom and never had it? And do we have solutions to begin to respond to, you know, the human needs that people are having right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that framing is, is right on. And, and it's almost like we can't talk about this without making a connection from our personal circumstances to the circumstances of everyone around us. I was saying to Abram before we got on, like, I could complain about my situation, but I see bigger challenges everywhere else that I look. Um, and I, I do, but I, I do want to say, you know, when we do these interviews, we like to really ground it in the personal and, and, and the personal can be about the work. Um, so we wanted to ask you, what's a, a challenge that you're facing individually uh, today? What's what's top of your mind today? Is it that um, those students, like, where is it? I mean, personally, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a healthy, you know, right. relatively young person. You know, um, I live in New York City, you know, um, at the epicenter of, you know, um, our current pandemic, you know, um, but there's a lot of quiet. There are a lot of resources that I have, you know, um, what crowds my mind space right now, right? you know, are individuals who are not as privileged as me, as, right. as both you and Abram know. You know, um, I wasn't always as privileged as I am right now. I grew up in a brothel in Detroit, Michigan. You know, um, I spent the ages of 12 and 13 homeless living on the streets of Detroit. You know, um, there was no shelter to be in place, 
you know, um, for, right? My mother <laughs> self-medicated as a result of, you know, um, the hard life, you know, um, of having two young kids before the age of 17, you know, um, and doing whatever she had to do in order to help us to survive, right? I mean, I'm no stranger, you know, um, to struggle, but I'm also very much acquainted with, you know, what some of the hardships of people who are vulnerable, you know, um, some of the hardships that they or we face, and so as I sit or stand in a, you know, privileged position, you know, executive director of a major research center, a professor at, you know, um, a prestigious university, you know, um, I recognize, you know, and remember, I recall what it means to be, you know, um, a vulnerable young man growing up in the city streets of Detroit, you know, relying upon the state in order to, you know, um, provide for us a state that wasn't always, you know, um, ready you know, um, our students in New York City, you know, are like me. They depend on, you know, on places like school, you know, yeah. for food and safety. I remember being homeless. When I was homeless, the year of my life that I spent homeless, I would go to school every day. And the reason I went to school every day because I didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And I would get a, um, a meal, a square meal, you know, right. um, at school. And if I had any other need or service, if I was sick, you know, um, there was a school nurse that could take care of me. Right. We have students who live this reality every day, you know, and it's no small number here in New York City. We estimate about 110,000 um, students live in situations of precarious housing, you know, much like I did growing up. We also can estimate that the majority of our students in the city live in some other form of vulnerability where, you know, um, they, they live in situations and environments where parents have to work. And so there's a question about what does it mean to shelter in place without the supervision of a parent, right, without the supervision or the company and the safety of, you know, um, somebody to look out for you. So what I'm thinking about right now, you know, what's most personal to me right now as I stand in my privileged position, you know, um, is the incredible empathy that I'm having right now for young people, you know, um, who are being tossed into, you know, a situation without adequate support. And we haven't done enough necessarily, you know, um, to be responsive to what their needs might be. Oh, yeah. Like, I really want to get into that. And and so how how is that? And and I know that everything is changing day to day, both from the circumstances around us, but in terms of also just how we're approaching our work. But right now, how is that impacting the work that you and your approach to the work? Where are you trying to? position your team? Where's your team trying to position itself in order to make an impact on some of these issues that you're thinking about? Yeah, we, we have to come out the situation far stronger, you know, with much more resolve than we went into it. Like normal cannot be acceptable anymore or what was normal can no longer be acceptable. You know, um, I'm looking at the data. I'm looking at situations. I'm looking at who gets to live and who gets to die. I'm looking at who gets to get a test and who doesn't. I'm thinking about who's who's enjoying remote education, who is prepared or familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. the systems and tools and who have access to those things and who don't. Yeah. You know, um and it's telling a story that we already knew. Right. You know, um that we have a tell of two experiences, two pathways in this country. One is for the privileged and one is for the vulnerable. You know, um and too often the vulnerable happens to be, you know, people who are black and brown or speak languages other than English or who has abilities that, you know, um, are not recognized or disabilities that are not necessarily supported. Um, these are individuals who, you know, um, happen to not have homes, 
you know, um, to shelter in, right? And so I think my mindset, you know, um, it's, it's just so different right now, you know, um, yeah. in this time. We know that our teachers need to be supported, but also know that in this moment of remote education, especially for vulnerable people, it's not the teachers who are delivering instruction. You know, it's our it's our parents, and so our parents also need to be supported. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that our students need to be supported because some of our students are sad. They're sad because they're going to have to miss prom. They're sad because they're going to miss their friends at school. They're sad because something is happening in the world and we have not, we have no adequate way of explaining to them, you know, what's happening in our world. Um, I'm sad because, you know, I understand right now in this moment where we can muster the courage, you know, um, to raise $500 billion to bail out um, corporations that we can have a, you know, a tariff, right? A, a stimulus package of $2 trillion. I mean, did you get that? $2 trillion. Right. You know, um, to make sure an economy, right, the fixed capitalism continues, but we cannot rise. We cannot galvanize, you know, um, the, the, the courage, you know, um, and the wisdom in order to shelter the needs of people who are most needed. I mean, who are most needy in this, in this situation. Right. So I'm sad because I understand that we have, you know, collective needs. And yet so often that collective means has failed to meet the needs of individuals, you know, um, who happen to be vulnerable, you know, um, in our society. And we know that this is baked into, you know, ideologies of race and racism. It's baked into ideologies of economic oppression and sexism, xenophobia, you know, um, and other forms of oppression that articulate themselves, you know, on daily. But I'm encouraged by this one thing. Okay. And now we can't deny that things, courageous things, are possible. We can't deny the fact that when we want to, that we can come together and that we can care for each other, that we can service you know, um, the needs of our public and our population. We can no longer deny that those things that we've been asking for is possible. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully at NYU Metro Center, We'll continue to work to support the needs of vulnerable people, but hopefully now we do so with a renewed energy and urgency mm-hmm. and that we renew our commitment to putting pressure on those institutions, you know, um, that have been given responsibility to service the needs of all citizens of this country, not just the privileged ones. And I hope that we do that in in you know greater conversation um, and in partnership with organizations throughout not only New York City but throughout you know the country and not the globe. Yeah, I yeah. hope so too. I was on a call today uh, where where a leader who I respect was saying that you know what what people were you know in early March is still who they are now. Now there's just a crisis that kind of amplifies. Um, the ways in which the way we are isn't working for everyone. Um, and, I, and I think what you're saying feels so uh, resonant um, w- with me and with what I understand. Um, and I think, you know, I, 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 I spent a lot of time talking to people, you know, my age and slightly younger who have that, uh, who have re- achieved some level of privilege, a, a, a place of standing in the, you know, in the middle carriages of, you know, the train, so to speak, um, and uh, who feel such weight 
of knowing how many needs are going unmet day in and day out, you know, that we are, we are churning out the repetition of this system that none of us likes and yet we're stuck in it. Um, and I think the, um, really this moment gives us a chance to, to work from the human as a starting point instead of working from the kind of like uh, external goals that are put on us, whether that's a, a test score goal or a profit bottom line goal or whatever the kind of external driven goal is, a thing like this makes us face that fundamental vulnerability of, of our shared humanity. And, and it's going to make us face a lot of stories where that vulnerability is concentrated, which I know is a language that I've heard you use and appreciate, the way that we see vulnerability concentrated, the way that we're going to see that play out in this city over the next few weeks, I think we're going to have some reckoning, some accounting to do for all of this, for what we've built. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that reckoning is now, right? I mean, I just heard, you know, that, you know, nonviolent offenders are going to be let out of prison question I have is if, if we can let them out of prison, right? We believe that there, they will be no threat to public safety. Why are they in prison in the first place? Mm-hmm. Like we, have, we have to reconcile. You talk about reckoning. We have to reconcile some of the decisions that we have made. I heard that New York City police um, are going to not be locking up or, you know, um, not harassing individuals for low-level, quote-unquote, low-level offenses. Well, my question is why were we harassing them in the first place? Right. Well, why does it take us take a crisis in order for you know policymakers to begin to make decisions that we could have made pre-crisis that could have made people's lives a lot better? Right. That reckoning is right now because mm-hmm. to be sure we're taking notes. And while New York State and other states in the United States have paused, oppression doesn't. You know, and I agree with you, Abram. I agree that you know um, what this crisis is doing. It's not you know unchanging us. It's revealing us. And, you know, I'm glad to see that there are individuals, you know, um, during this time of crisis who have determined to rise to the occasion, you know, um, to rethink the way that we have done business and who have decided that the way that we have been doing business in this country has been backwards. And that in order to go forward, we have to rethink what we do in the way that we do it and begin to center the individuals that we have failed to center all along. That if American society is about all of us. You know, not just uh, the young and healthy, the rich and wealthy. If it's about Hmm. all of us, you know, uh, then we need to have a a deeper national conversation. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm encouraged that we can have that conversation now because the data is on the the table. All of us have to look at, you know, um, how our response is. We've got a president who's talking about, you know, um, some lives being dispensable. As a Hmm. black man in the United States, I understand what it means to have your life as dispensable. But now he's talking about, you know, um, people who happen to be older or have pre-existing conditions as expendable. And I tell you, you know, um, the far majority of us, we do not believe that that is an option, that human life can never be um, expendable. And uh, and I'm glad that, you know, you and Sam, you know, um, and other partners in my organization, um, NYU Metro Center, you know, um, is continuing to fight the fight, you know, um, and that fight is that all life. You know, um, especially vulnerable lives, you know, um, deserves, you know, um, the type of attention, the type of respect um, 
that more privileged lives, you know, tend to get in this country. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I'm I'm just paraphrasing what I'm hearing from both of you, but um, I have seen, and it certainly comes across in in, uh, 45's comments, people saying uh, we need to get back to normal. And it's it's <laughs> like no, <laughs> this is showing us we, mm. that is not what we need. And in fact, and 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 I think inherent in that statement is a sense of there's now during the crisis, and then there will be afterwards. And there's a certain sense in which the crisis is just accentuating the reality that was already there. Yes, everyone's life is different for sure right now, but this is like that leader was saying. This is how we were before, this, and and this is potentially how we'll be afterwards. Yeah. And I, I wonder. I one question I've been grappling with is what is the most important thing that schools can and should be doing right now? You know, we we are rolling out remote learning in New York and in D.C. and in L.A. and a number of other large school districts, and but there are so many different ways that schools are doing it, and they all are a reflection of what the schools were doing a month beforehand, and so you. You know, you have kind of very rigid and um, traditional approaches to it, uh, to, you know, much more exploratory. And and that's just the academic side, you know, because when I talk to counselors right now, you know, Abram and I both work for the DOE, for the school system here in New York City. So we're hearing a little bit about what's going on uh, from the school's approaches. And when I talk to counselors, you know, we, we talk so much about just, reaching out and having a conversation may be the most important thing. And, and we know that that's also important any time of year in in any school. So I wonder how we can be thinking about what school should be for right now, especially. Well, I think, I think schools need to be listening. I think the clarion call is there that we weren't ready for this pandemic. We wasn't, we weren't ready, you know, um, for this event. You know, some schools have decided not even to go with remote education because they don't know how to do it. And they have no clue about how to ramp up and prepare, you know, um, their teachers, you know, and others in order to be responsive to the needs of, you know, uh, the individual students that they were serving. They're barely, you know, unable to respond to those needs, as you said, Sam, you know, um, of their students, you know, when physical spaces, you know, um, or accessible, right, you know, um, I think that this is a time for us to, you know, just reach out and have conversations and listen, you know, learn, you know, um, and move from a place, you know, of thick listening and, you know, um, information informed by our partners that we need to begin to take participatory approaches that it can't be top down, you know, um, that we have to, you know, um, create spaces where young people can begin to teach us and tell us you know, how they feel and what they need, where families can be part of that conversation, where we can, you know, um, collect resources and share those resources together to imagine schools in new ways. And and, Mm. and the first step to doing any of that, you know, it's just listening. It's listening, you know, and and, and putting in place, you know, with some of these digital devices and apparatus, you know, um, that can make listening possible and make listening happen. You know, um, and in that listening, you know, we have to, you know, 
do the work that's necessary to interrupt our own biases that we might bring into that listening so that we can hear things anew so that, you know, white supremacists, you know, um, patriarchal, you know, um, anti-black, anti, you know, brown, you know, um, types of discourses do not filter the ways that we listen. Right. You know, um, I think that I think the other thing and then that's that's part of that listening, you know, um, is to allow other people to ask questions. You know, as we listen, you know, allow other people, people from our communities, you know, people who don't typically get heard. Right. People who had their you know thumbs on the pulse of situations like this, allow them to begin to do some of the acting. You know, um, while our young people and our families begin to do some of the answering and we take notes as we with them begin to imagine and reimagine what education will look like as we begin to prepare, you know, um, for a system and create a system, you know, um, that in its design is responsive to, you know, whatever situation that might come up, because that is the system that we have. The current system that we have and we know and we see, you know, was not designed to be response, responsive mm-hmm. to, you know, um, concentrated vulnerability or mm-hmm. crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it was designed for those who are already privileged, those who came packaged in a particular way. And for those students, the system always works. But when something heavy hits, you know, um, the system begins to shut down. It begins to shutter because that's how it's been designed. And what we need to do is understand that that is a flaw in design, not necessarily, you know, um, just a situation of crisis. And this is a good opportunity, as good as any, to think about how we should and can redesign, you know, um, the education apparatus in this country. Can I I ask? uh, Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Yeah, as usual, I feel like there's a lot of, um, have a lot of questions and thoughts, but but one um, that maybe is useful on the podcast is why is it so hard to listen? And in particular, why is it so hard once you get power to adopt that listener's posture? Yeah, and then that's, a, that's a, an amazing question, right? It's an amazing question. They got so many answers to it, and and the answers are complex in their intersectional. One reason you know, um, that it becomes impossible for those in power to listen, you know, um, is the type of arrogance, you know, um, that power concedes, you know, um, they're the conceit to it, right? that, that, that people in power believe that they don't have to listen to other people. They believe that, you know, listening is an infringement on power, that humility and spaces that allow for a different type of growth in humanity you know, um, does not allow for, you know, power, right? I mean, and and this is the type of, you know, insecurity that comes with individuals that need to have power over other individuals. There are other forms of power. There's collective power. There is internal power, right? So we don't just have to have, you know, the preposition of over next to power, like power over. We can also have power with and power with that, which is a different type of power um, that requires that we do listen. You know, um, but unfortunately, individuals who are obsessed with, you know, um, the type of power over individuals, you know, um, are also very, 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 you know, um, insecure, you know, um, in that, you know, possession. I think the other reason that it's so difficult, you know, um, to listen is because, unfortunately, I think that our education institutions believe that they have answers 
And there's no evidence that shows me or suggests that we do. We've had static, you know, on patterns of oppression and education that have played out year to year. We can see the discipline. We can see it in um, graduation rates. We can see it in academic achievement. And these are like, like these are their measures, right? We can also see it in in some of our measures, like efficacy and and who gets to enjoy and not enjoy you know, on the situation and environment of school, right? And so we see these like static disparities that are elastic and that stretch out through education. And yet they continue to do the same things and they continue to insist that they have the answers when none of those answers have worked. And none of those answers continue to work. And so there's a type of stubbornness, you know, um, to individuals in power and to the system itself. I think the, the bigger issue though, you know, um, deals with, you know, um, who gets to talk and who gets to, and who has to listen. And this is about not only power, it's about oppression, right? We know that those in power are typically, you know, um, white or male, cis, um, heteronormative, you know, um, English speaking, you know, able in some of these other things. These people believe that they don't have to speak to, you know, um, those, you know, who don't know, don't necessarily possess mm-hmm. those identities. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're not black, you're not listened to. If you're if you're a woman, you're not listened to. If you are, you know, otherly able, you're not listened to. If you don't speak English, you know, you're not listened to. And 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 and, and, and the bogus proposition that goes along with that is is that the the more of those things you are, the less we give society permission to listen to you. If you don't have a certain number of letters behind your name, you don't get listened to. Mm-hmm. And and herein lies the problem. We've normalized, you know, um, the type of ignorance. We've normalized the idea that we only listen to some as those things correspond with particular privileged social identities and we do not listen to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> David, we want to, we always like to, to wrap up and ask our guests um, before you go, one thing that's bringing you a sense of calm in the midst of all the stress that is around us right now? Um, well, certainly a few things, you know, are, are giving me calm in this moment. I do think that there's a silver lining to be found in all things. Mm-hmm. One silver lining that I can, you know, um, find in this is a pollution in places like Wuhan, China, are is dying down. We see yep. pollution over Seattle and Los Angeles mm. and even New York City beginning to diminish. That the land has called for, you know, on um, its own type of Sabbath. Hmm. Mm-hmm. We also see, you know, um, the collective human spirit. I heard about the other day um, people going shopping for people who are older and more vulnerable. You know. Um, in this moment of pandemic, you know, I'm volunteering not only time, but also resources, you know, um, to shop for other people. And some of these people are strangers, you know, um, I'm always, you know, um, amazed by the power, you know, um, of the human spirit and its generosity. I think that that will prevail ultimately. And I think that's what drives change you know, um, and it drives the type of transformation that we want to see, you know, um, in this world. You can hear the birds again. 
in Central Park. Mm-hmm. Out of my window with the quiet city, I can see the morning doves, you know, um, flock against my trees. You know, um, mm-hmm. today I, I caught, you know, um, a cardinal sitting in the midst of them. Mm-hmm. There's a calm and there's a quiet to the world. Mm-hmm. Not just a reckoning, but also an understanding, a deep understanding that in this engine, you know, um, that we work through in the vacuum, you know, of our day to day, you know, um, the best of us, you know, is all of us. And I think that we're beginning to, you know, to recognize it if we look, you know, hard enough and we stare at it. Yeah. David, uh, it's been a privilege. It's been, uh, kind of, it fills my heart to hear your words and I'm just so glad you were able to come on with us. Thank you so much, Sam. And thank you to Abram. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, for being, uh, a source of wisdom and calm and, and leadership, uh, in, in the storm. Um, I know that a lot of people, uh, who I, uh, love and respect and look to are looking, uh, to you and to others who are, you know, who are speaking this, truth into, you know, the reality that we're seeing. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care, David. We'll be in touch. Talk soon. Bye. Okay. I wonder if maybe right here is where we should do the music. (laughs) Yeah, we just let David have the last word, right? Um, Yeah, so... So uh, are we ending by, like, good bureaucrats? Are we going to there? Uh, radicals, I think, right? Oh, you want to? Oh, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Sorry, everybody. One take podcast. So we're gonna end like Let's good, do it. We're going to end like good radicals. What's one thing you learned today that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? It's a lot of different things, but um, Dr. Kirkland emphasized a note that I'm hearing again and again and that i uh, have been trying to repeat for a while now, which is this idea of human um, humanization, hu- centering humans, centering the affected, impacted humans in our discourse and our systems and our policy solutions. Um, yeah, I, that's messy, you know, because a lot of people have a lot of needs and it's a lot to untangle. Um, and the way the system is set up, it looks like it's nobody's job really to do all that. Um, and yet, you know, therein lies the great story of the human spirit, you know, that he's pointing to the story of banding together and overcoming seemingly impossible circumstances, right? Everything that every movie is based on is this idea of a human spirit where we, where we band together and, and, you know, survive and thrive. Um, and that comes from connecting to each other at a much deeper level than the list of tasks or calendar appointments that is typical of our day-to-day, week-in, week-out work. Yeah. How about you, yeah. Sam? I mean, he... And that that's the, the call for schools to listen, right? And um, it, it comes back to... I'm actually reminded of what Brian spoke about from Seattle yesterday on the podcast when he talked about um, trying to find his purpose and still fulfill the, the, 
task before his company. Um, both of those are examples of ways in which a system is not created to do the to take the action that is going to move social justice forward. Um, like that was the tension Brian was feeling yesterday, and I feel like that's the tension that you're pointing out here. And what David said was that it's um, there's a flaw in the system, and he he talked about the reasons why we don't listen better, and he he really pointed to uh, I think mostly issues around individuals' egos and biases, but there's also a systemic barrier there. Uh, that I think I'm still trying to unpack. I think it's kind of the whole reason for this podcast is what are the way what are the ways that the system is getting in, in is creating a barrier to us doing our very best and most responsive work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think my my takeaway is is similar to yours. Uh, at the end, it, it's just very simple. It's it's just you know. We talk so much about listening, and, and I've been asking this question, what are schools supposed to do right now? And particularly when, you know, I spoke to a teacher in a GED program today who said, yeah, I mean, none of my students are interested in logging on. Hmm. Attendance was low before this happened, but now like, they're really not interested. And so we have this remote learning platform. So so what are so then the question I'm asking is, what are we here for? And and right now, it's kind of go back to the basics and just listen, you know, engage, hear what what's going on, figure out if there are things that we can do to fill a gap, to, to meet a need, uh, but also be listening with an eye towards the future. Like, where is this system not working in this moment? Because that is just, putting a spotlight on what wasn't working beforehand either. Yeah. So, uh, help us out. Uh, if you're, if you're listening to us, uh, this far into the podcast, thank you for sticking with us, uh, and help us out. Uh, hit us up on Twitter. Uh, it's at R A D B U R E A U rad bureau. Uh, you can search for the radical bureaucrat, the radical bureaucrat.com. Um, I, Google is helpful in this regard um, or uh, find us on Twitter um, let us know what you think add add your comments add your links to things that we talked about um, we don't have uh, a lot of extra time on our hands beyond uh, recording and putting this out so uh, we're really looking for support from the community to, uh, to help us continue this as long as we can uh, and finally let's uh, end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody. Really?